Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Music Therapy Show. I am Janice Lindstrom, the host and producer of this show, and I've been on the air for seven years. And today is Friday, January 29th, 2016. This is the 225th episode of the Music Therapy Show. I started this show to educate others about music therapy, and if you've been following this podcast for a while, uh, for the last two or three years, you'll know that January is Social Media Advocacy Month for music therapists. You can find out more about Social Media Advocacy Month at my website, heartbeatmusictherapy.net. There's going to be links uh, there for this podcast uh, show notes page with to other participating blogs and podcasts that are in the so participating in the social media advocacy month. And one of the advocacy roles that I play is to answer questions about music therapy and how to become one. And that's what is happening today. So um today I am being interviewed instead of doing the interviewing by Tony Sherlock. So, or, sorry, not Tony. It's Tori Sherlock, short for Victoria. So, um, Tori, welcome to the show. Hi, Janice. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Um, tell me, before we begin the interview, tell me what prompted you to contact me and why you're doing, and maybe a little bit about who you are and, and why you're doing this project. Sure. So I am going to be graduating from UMass Boston this coming spring, and for the Honors College there, we are required to do a thesis before we graduate. So I'm a psych major right now, psychology, and I've been looking at things that I want to do in the future, and I came upon music therapy and have been looking into it more depth. And I was hoping to research more and kind of learn about the perspective of the artists and art therapists, particularly music therapists, and how their jobs work what it's entailed and sort of get their perspective because I think a lot of the time with treatment, you go right to the patient. So I'm kind of looking from that other view. So I'm carrying out that research for my thesis. So I'm reaching out to different art therapists, music therapists, sort of around the country to sort of get their take on their job and some insight into the field. Nice. Okay. Well, then I'll hand the reins over to you and you can start the interview. All right, thanks. So first, I'm just curious, what made you consider a career in music therapy? How did you come to find it and get involved with it? So I was a bassoon player in high school, and I played in orchestra and band. And um, I was also into photography. I I did photography for the school newspaper. And uh, this was in the late 80s. and I graduated from high school in 1990. And so when I was looking at colleges to go to, my dad went to Sam Houston State University for a photojournalism degree. And so I thought that's what I wanted to do too. So I looked at Sam Houston State University and music had been a part of my life. And uh, uh, so I wanted to continue playing bassoon if I could. And I auditioned for a scholarship in the music department and they said, after I did my audition, they said, you should meet with Dr. Marianne Noltrick, the director of music therapy. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. I'll go ahead and do that. So I met with her, and as she was explaining what music therapy was, I'd never heard of it before this meeting, but as she was explaining what it was and what music therapists did, 
uh, I had this overwhelming feeling that this is what I was meant to do. And uh, it, I later, um, later on that year discovered that I was not a very good photographer. So uh, this was actually a better fit for me as a degree plan anyway. <laughs> oh, okay. So it was presented to you and then you it sort of just felt right when she, when she told you about it? It did. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So since you started working uh, in the field, I know that um, when I asked you prior to the beginning of the interview, you've been in the field for 20 years. How would you say it's changed or evolved? Um, I think that more and more. So every day it seems that we're, music therapists are asked, oh, music therapy, what is that? And more and more over the later years of my career, I don't get that question quite as much. I get, oh, music therapy. Yeah, I've heard of it. Or my niece is a music therapy major. Or uh, my uncle had music therapy. You know, I hear stories like that. So people have heard of it. And they may not know exactly what it is, but they have have heard of it. Um, And that's been the biggest change that, that I've noticed. So the awareness generally, it's not as it's grown. Right, right. Okay. Um, so I know you you're working at SMU. What what is your primary setting uh, when it comes to doing your your therapy with your clients? Where do you primarily do that? Well, currently at SMU, I am uh, supervising practicum students as they do their cl- clinical training. So these are music therapy majors and. Um, they at SMU they take six uh no it's five semesters of music therapy practicum and I supervise in settings where the students go that where there is not a board certified music therapist already employed. So we have a clinic on site and so I manage the clinic and we see clients, usually children and a few adults with developmental disorders is our primary population for the clinic. And uh, so I supervise and organize all of that. Um there's uh, several music therapists that work in nursing homes. That's our second rotation is gerontological. And uh, there's several music therapists that work in nursing homes, but they have contracts set up that, such that it's not really conducive for them to be supervising music therapists. So I will go in and supervise music, the students when they do their clinical, uh, their gerontological rotation. Um, and those are my primary roles. They're, the next semester would be... Um, psych settings, so psychiatric music therapy. And uh, there's a a few settings where music therapists can supervise students in psychiatric settings. Um, But when we have a lot of students to place, then there, you know, we need more options. So Parkland Hospital contacted SMU about having a program there. And so when we place students at Parkland Psych Unit, which is our, the Dallas area's community hospital, um, that's when I'll go to Parkland and supervise the practicum there. And then after psych, they go to medical settings. And now we have enough music therapists. Well, we don't have enough, but we have several music therapists that work in hospital settings so that other students go to other music therapists for their supervision, for their medical practicum. And then their fifth practicum is a, a an elective sort, so they can choose which population they want to go to. And I've done a few supervisions of practicum five um, in settings like domestic violence centers and schools and a few other places, uh, refugee clin- uh, refugee camps. 
Um, but for the most part, the students are choosing other places like hospice and, and places to go at school districts that have music therapists there. So, But that's that's what I primarily do now is work in the developmental, the clinic, and then in the gerontological settings. Okay, okay. So when when you're working, when they're working with them, is it typically a one-on-one situation, group work? How does that tend to be determined? It, most of our clinic patients are one-on-one. We do have one group that comes to the clinic. Um, so the majority of the students have the one-on-one therapy in the clinic. A couple of them will have that group experience. And the gerontological setting, it's, a, it's primarily all group. Um, in psych, it's mostly group. And in the medical settings, it's uh, mostly individual settings going into patient rooms and working individually with the patients. Okay, so it tends to vary by the situation that that you guys are it does. coming into. It does. Okay. And what what's the process like typically when you like when you meet with client? Um, like, is it their assessment and then you set goals? I know that since it's a different type of therapy, it might not be the stereotypical. You know, like knock off every every step. How does that work? Yeah. Well, there is a general process for music therapy that we follow. We do start with a referral to our services, and then once we receive the referral, we do an assessment, and that can involve reviewing um, medical charts or other educational charts or assessments from other disciplines. It can be interviewing parents or caregivers or the patients themselves, and then it it always involves a session. So the first session where we get to know the client um, we always do an assessment then. After we do the assessment, we set goals and objectives and design our treatment plan. And then we take data on the treatment plan and <clears throat> evaluate the, the outcomes at the end and then terminate. In my setting, we always terminate at the end of the semester with the patients. Okay, okay. And could you give me some examples of, like, the most, I guess you'd say, um, successful techniques that you use throughout treatment, like some exercises you might do? or well, Some of the primary techniques that we might use would be singing, um, playing instruments, um, maybe some music-assisted relaxation, uh, songwriting, improvisation, and, and uh, some other techniques that we might use. And... Um, each of those techniques, we can use them with any of the populations that we might work with. Um, one example that I like to share, when I worked in, I used to work in a pediatric rehab hospital where children would come after they have some sort of traumatic event that usually either caused a brain injury or a spinal cord injury, and they were in this hospital for rehabilitation. And uh, there was a five-year-old boy from Saudi Arabia who was here for treatment, I believe. I don't think his parents worked over here. I think they came to this hospital specifically for his rehabilitation because he had gotten injured in some way, and I don't remember how he got injured, and had a spinal cord injury that was um, pretty high level. So it left him as a quadriplegic. So that means that pretty much from the neck down, he was paralyzed. And he didn't speak any English, so um, 
music was a nice way to start working with him. He didn't have to follow directions because I could just sing some songs and, and offer him some instruments, and he was able to participate, even though we didn't speak the same language and the songs I was singing was not in his primary language. Um, I was able to connect with him using children's songs that are common to my culture. And through that, I was able to teach him a little bit of English so that he could communicate by, like, picking the songs he wanted or the instruments that he wanted to play. And uh, I developed a really nice rapport with him in this way so that when the, I believe at this hospital, it was the occupational therapist were working with him to use his wheelchair. He was using what was called a sip-and-puff wheelchair where he would use his breath through a tube to control the movements of the wheelchair so that he would be able to get around on his own. And uh, he didn't understand what the tube was. He didn't understand the wheelchair. So they called me rather urgently and said, can you please come up and help us out? And uh, I had been working on respiratory uh, strength and conditioning with him using a recorder. And he had this song that he liked that I sang every time, and it became a familiar song. It's it's, uh, Down by the Bay. Um, And... uh, so I came up while he was sitting in this chair, and I just started singing it with him. And then I brought out a recorder, and I played it. And then I brought out a different recorder so that we weren't transferring uh, germs. And I turned the mouthpiece around so that I could do the finger parts and he could blow the air. And that's how he understood how to blow because he understood how to, to make the song go, because I would only, it, recorders only make sounds when you blow through it. So as he blew mm-hmm. through it, I was able to play and sing the song that he liked. And then he was able to understand that that's what he needed to do in this tube, and it would move the wheelchair, and uh, he, he really liked that. And so that, would, that whole session lasted about 30 minutes from being afraid of the chair and not understanding what to do to being ready to move his chair about the nurse's station on his own. Wow, that's that's remarkable. So it sort of acted as a universal language that you both could understand, even though the language barrier was there initially. It was a way for us to connect without using um, language, yeah. Wow. And how long, on average, do you, um, do the length of working with clients vary, or is there like an average that you'll be, you'll spend with them? It depends on the setting. So in mm-hmm. some settings, so for a long time I was in private practice and I worked in uh, with a home health care type of company. So we, I would go to the patient's homes and work on, and these were mostly children with developmental disabilities that qualified for this particular service. And if you have a developmental disability, what it, it, it's, it's something like cerebral palsy would be an example. And you get cerebral palsy um, either at birth or shortly after birth, uh, or sometimes you have it before birth, just depending on the type that you have. And um, it affects your development as a human being. And it doesn't go away after a certain point, right? So as you grow, you still have disabilities, but your needs change where you might be able to like operate this wheelchair, but as you get older, you have different um, problems that you have to navigate. So 
for people with developmental disabilities like that, that this, this autism and cerebral palsy and things like that happen for your entire life. They don't go away. So you're most likely going to need treatment for your entire life. So I had patients that I uh, saw for over 10 years um, in this type of setting. And the hospital, uh, I worked in psychiatric hospitals and rehab hospitals and NICUs and things like that and in cancer units and all over the place. And uh, in settings like that, I had patients maybe just once. Oh, okay. Or for just a few weeks. So, so it, um, yeah, it really depends on the setting okay. and the, the nature okay. of, of the reason that they're coming to see you. Okay, so there's no limitations, though. It, it, it's by case-by-case case basis, sort of? Right, right. Okay. Um, now, would you say that uh, the work that you're doing is measurable, like the effects that you're having on with, with, with the client? Absolutely. We take data. We uh, use a data-based model of service at SMU. That's what we teach our students is the data-based model of therapy. So we take data and determine um, whether the clients are meeting their objectives or not. And if all of the objectives are met, then um, discharge would be the outcome. Okay. So um, I know you said that uh, when you're working with the students, you guys go to all these different settings and you've worked in pediatrics. Would you say that there is a specific demographic or, I guess, um, maybe diseases that you've found your treatment works best with, like it's been most effective with? Well, no, because I've worked in a lot of different settings and with a lot of different demographics and a lot of different um, diagnoses. And music therapy has been effective with each of them. So music therapists in general work with, there's some that, that even do prenatal work. So they're working with the moms and helping them have um, uh, through childbirth. And so one music therapist told a story. Um, I don't want to really steal her story, but there was a, a mom who was pregnant, and the mom actually died in an accident, but the pregnancy did not terminate on its own. So the mom was on life support, and the pregnancy was, the baby was still alive. And the music therapist actually treated the unborn child um, to provide some stimulation because she wasn't getting as much, you know, any movement or sound stimulation from the mother at that point. So a music therapist can work before birth, and then there's music therapists that work all the way into hospice and help people to die or mm-hmm. through that death process. So we work across the lifespan and with multiple dis- disabilities, So we, and even with healthy people. So we work on stress management and in wellness settings and with people with autism and people that have had strokes and other medical disorders. So... Um, Music therapists can work with a wide variety. Okay, so the, there's really no limitations on age or diagnoses. It, it spreads across them all, you'd say? No, no. Okay. So what are what would you say are some of the most rewarding aspects of your job? The most rewarding aspects are um, seeing the 
patients have that success, especially the patients where it takes a lot of work for them to have success. So um, I worked with one child who had cerebral palsy and uh, was not able to communicate, but they could vocalize, so they would make some sounds, but they could not really communicate um, with language. And uh, their their mobility was impaired, and we would work on um, something like maintaining breath support to blow into an instrument for the length of a, a part of a melody, so a, a phrase of a song. And we would work on it for what seemed like forever before they would make any progress. But then, you know, you look, when I look back, it seems like it would take forever and the progress would be so small and almost hard to see until you look back over the last month or three months of work and realize where you started and where you came. I have a, a guitar student that has a Down syndrome and when I started with this student, they were only able to play uh, like single fingers barely pressing on the string, and so the sound quality would be really poor, and I'd have to give lots of reminders about where to put your finger and have to reset it, and it, just going through any sort of song was very laborious. And uh, it seemed like we had forgotten about how far we'd come until one day I looked up and noticed that he was able to play with all four of his fingers on this warm-up that we do where we play one finger in each fret on every string uh, up and down a scale. And he was able to play it without me even saying anything besides, let's do your warm-up. And he went all the way through it, up and back, with no cues or mistakes or anything. And and, uh, the, the progress that happened, it took a long time to get there, but then it's amazing to see that when they they actually do reach their goals. Right. That must be gratifying for you, and also it's just seeing them be, I'm sure, excited about what they've learned and how they've progressed like that. Um, Mm -hmm. So alternatively, I have to ask, what are some of the more challenging parts of the job? Well, um, it seems like, and it is actually a lot of fun to go and sing with patients all day, but that can be really um, strenuous work physically and emotionally to be so present with your patient and to be working to adjust the setting and the environment in a way that they can find success and to have to put your body in different positions to provide the best cues or positioning for your client. Um, It can be pretty exhausting. And, And probably the most challenging part is when other people don't understand exactly what we're doing. We're doing actual, real, therapeutic work, and it might look like we're just singing and playing guitar. So, oh, that's nice that you sing. And I sing at a nursing home, too, so I do music therapy. But actually, they they don't. They just go and sing, and it can be nice and wonderful, and they can see lovely responses. But it's not actually therapy, and it, that's a hard part to communicate to some people. Okay. So you you sort of just answered my next question, but so 
you do experience that that doubt from people or, or maybe misunderstanding when they or critique i don't know what you might call it but when you're that does exist in in your experience it does exist um because a lot of what we do is uh it, it can be nuanced and it, and it is fun and it is entertaining i mean it, it it is you know we do sing and play guitar right and also musicians people that can sing and play guitar or other instruments can go and play for people and have lovely responses and see some of the wonderful things that we as music therapists might see. But um, the difference is that music therapists actually are doing things with an outcome in mind. So we're not just singing and playing and then seeing this magic happen. We're actually doing things with a very purposeful reason and, uh, and trying to shape the outcome or the response that appears magical, we're actually trying to shape it. And we really do understand, we learn how music affects the brain and try to shape the music to elicit these responses from our patients or clients. Plus, the other key part that we do learn in school is about the therapeutic relationship. And developing that relationship through the music and with the music and the patient is what makes the therapy happen. And I'm sure you have experienced at some point in your life uh, listening to a song or even playing a song and feeling transformed in some way by that song. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. But that doesn't that doesn't make it therapy. You know, I go to a personal trainer and do workouts, but that doesn't mean that I'm getting physical therapy. Um, right. Mm -hmm. You know, I might uh, rest my voice and not talk to people if I have a sore throat, but that doesn't mean I'm doing speech therapy. And because music is so meaningful and accessible to everyone um, that, and, and we as a society, tend to stick therapy at the end of everything that makes us feel good, right? <laughs> I'm doing yeah. therapy because I just took a nap, right? <laughs> um, or chocolate therapy. Uh, I think that's where the confusion comes in, that people okay. don't understand that this is actually a degree where we receive a, a high amount of training um, to do what we do. Right, absolutely. So you think a part of it, though, is just like, People aren't like informed about that process. How it is a deliberate, you know, you're, you're doing it to get this outcome and make the person either feel better or be able to move better, whatever it might be. Just not not knowing. Some of it is that, and some of it is that personal connection that we have with music, and mm -hmm. being the way that we can share um, that connection or that transformative experience when we make music with other people or attend a concert with another person, we feel that. So it's very mm -hmm. accessible. And um, music is so meaningful to us. And I think that it makes it easier for um, anyone to, to understand that power of music, but they don't quite understand how we're doing, how music therapists are using that power of music with the people that we work with specifically. Right, right. There's a clear, a, a big difference. I see what you mean. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, within the field, do you feel that the work that you and other music therapists are doing is well compensated for in terms of, like, salaries and 
compensation in that regard? Um, to a degree, like I feel well compensated for what I do, um, but that hasn't always been the case. Some uh, jobs that I've taken where I didn't feel like I was well compensated for it, but I wanted to do those because I wanted to have the opportunity to educate and potentially grow that into something that was better compensated. Um, and there's just some settings that that maybe don't – I don't feel like music therapy is valued as much as it should be. Um, so we still have work to do in that area. But for the most part, I do believe that music therapists can make a good living for themselves. It just depends on how um, – they how they want to work and um, what they're willing to do to get there. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, as the, the field continues to grow, the the value will be representative in terms of like how you guys are also being being compensated for it. It'll only get better. Hopefully, the more people see the effects that it has. That's been my experience. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I know you said that obviously music was a big part of your life growing up. Has doing it professionally and making it like your job, I guess you'd say, made you look at it any differently or has it changed your your outtake on it? It does. Um, so music was a really personal um, love that I had and I also had a really strong need to want to help people and that's why music therapy was such a good fit for me. Um, in the pursuit of the degree, we have to take all of the we have to, we're music majors, so we take all of the um, music major courses and and study our craft in great detail. And the act of doing that can be um, difficult. I mean, you're a student, so you know how hard it can be when you're a student. And when you're ha- as music students, you you know can often take ensembles. You're required to take ensemble credits and private lessons and and theory and history and musicianship and piano and all of these these classes that are really quite challenging. And you get like one credit, so you're taking right. you know 15 classes, but not getting the same amount of credit as a I don't know a math major that's taking four, 12, three credit classes, you know, something like that. So it can be a real challenge, plus you have to practice for six hours a day and then fit in practicing and studying and a social life. So uh, all of that can lead to some burnout a bit. And I did experience a lot of burnout, and when I graduated, I didn't want to listen to any music at all, <laughs> So, oh. except what I did with my clients. And uh, um, I stopped enjoying it personally. Um, which after a a little more time in the field, I found that to be unacceptable. And so then I started looking for ways to enjoy music again, and I held on to, like, some artists or recordings that I didn't use in therapy because a lot of times we can start to analyze music all the time and say, hmm, this would be good for a client in this way or in this setting instead of just enjoying the music. So I had to kind of learn how to turn off that analyzing brain and just enjoy the music more. And I did that by saving some music that was just mine that I listened to and didn't uh, bring to a therapy session. Um, And then I also started playing and performing like in choirs and things that where it was just my 
musicianship. It wasn't for a job or for any other reason except for my own enjoyment. So you have been able to hang on to the part of it playing like a like a leisurely, like enjoyable thing and not just your job. You still you still appreciate it in that way? Yes. Yeah, but it does take some work and there I did I have gone through periods of time where music was all work and so I just didn't want to do it in my off hours. So, uh, but I think it's important for music music therapists to um, make sure that they don't do that because I think our own personal music playing, music performance, music participation is uh, essential to us as human beings and to us as therapists. Right. Um, so this is a little bit, it's related but not directly about the job. I'm curious as to, as a musician, what, what sort of inspires you as a musician? I know you said you uh, did orchestra growing up. Is there certain kinds of music you like to make, or where do you find inspiration for your for your art? I really like um, Baroque music, probably because they had a lot of great bassoon solos in the Baroque music. But uh, I enjoy listening to Baroque, and I enjoy... Um, playing instruments that I don't play at work. So, like, I'm trying to play the banjo, which I might use at work at some point, but right now I'm just playing it for fun, and and, uh, I'm not really good enough yet to play for other people, so that's really just mine. Um, And uh, sometimes I can find some inspiration or some just, oh, yeah, I remember what it's like to learn something new as I do that. Um, and then I also have a two-year-old, so as I make music with him and see his relationship to music develop and his musical skills develop, um, that inspires me because I, I see through his experience what it's like to have a relationship with music and how essential it is for human development. Absolutely. So can you actually just give me a rundown of all the instruments you, you play? So um, in school, I played viola for middle school orchestra and uh, bassoon, and I played bassoon all the way through college. Um, When I was in school, the the requirements have changed a bit since, but when I was in school, we had to take um, methods classes to learn how to play all of the string instruments, all of the brass instruments, all the woodwind instruments, and percussion so I have a pretty elementary wow. knowledge of how to play all of those instruments. Um, but And as music therapists, we have to be proficient in singing and guitar and piano. Um, and I have personally have found being able to have some drumming skills, so like not just holding a drum and playing a rhythm, but actually having some... Uh, hand drumming performance types of skills or accompaniment types of skills to be useful. Um, And so I play all of those. And then I play around on the banjo. Wow. That's very extensive. (laughs) Really impressive. (laughs) So many instruments. I know. It's surprising to me that they made you learn every... You said string, brass, woodwind, percussion. They just expected you to sort of have some kind of knowledge on all of it. 
They did, and we so we took classes for you know we took a woodwinds methods class and a brass class and all of that, and it was similar. It was the same classes that the music education majors had to take, um, except they had to have two semesters of each of those, and we only had to have one semester of each of those. Um, but uh, and they took that requirement out of the music therapy curriculum some years later, and. Uh, I understand why they took it out, but I did also use all of that information. So I'm I'm a little torn because our curriculum is pretty packed. We have to have a lot of credit hours, <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, and it's hard to fit everything that we need into that degree plan. But uh, I did use those classes uh, pretty extensively in my work. Right. It, they def- it, I mean, it definitely seems valuable. It's just it's definitely. Awesome. Heavy course yeah. load out of. Um, okay, I yeah. Sometimes it was hard to see the value of those courses when we were in them, but later <laughs> I saw the value of them. Right, you can appreciate it now that you have the the skills, but at yeah. the time it was probably a lot. <laughs> um, okay, so I took a course this past fall on the principles of psychotherapy, and it covered just a lot of the different treatment styles over the, um, the course of history. And I noticed, I talked to my professor about it, expressive therapies were kind of left out. And I know that they've been around and that they are around. I wondered if you had any thoughts on why it's not, you know, talked about or why it might have been left out of the curriculum. It could be because um, to do to one of the expressive therapies, and and by that I, I, I assume that you're meaning the creative arts therapies like art and dance therapy and music therapy? Yes. Sorry, yeah. Okay. Okay, so I believe that it might have been left out because art and music and dance therapy can work in more um, ways than the psychotherapeutic background, right? Um, And also because you probably need, well, not probably, you do need to have training in art and music and dance uh, and pretty extensive training in those in order to, do those treatments and perhaps the courses um, as the the textbooks that were written for these courses were written by people that were good psychotherapists but didn't have this additional training. They had never heard of these other therapies or um, because the expressive therapies can work in different settings than just the ones where psychotherapy works maybe they didn't feel like it was appropriate to include. Um, yeah, that, These therapies definitely... are young. So music therapy has been around for 65 years, which is young when you think about the age of psychotherapy. And uh, I don't know if you've been around, um, like, say, people that are 20 years older than you, but it's it's pretty easy for someone that's 20 years older to discount the opinions and thoughts of uh, someone that's 20 years younger than them simply because they don't have the same life experiences. So maybe there's a little bit of that going on too, <laughs> you know? <laughs> that's definitely an option, uh, an option there. Um, okay, just my last question sort of to wrap up is, is what sort of advice would you give someone like myself looking to go into the field? Um I guess my biggest advice would be to be passionate about it. This is not an easy field to go into. 
it's a it's a lot of difficult work, but it is very rewarding. And if you are passionate about the work, then it will make it a lot easier to do because it's not always um, it's not always fun. But anything that you're passionate about becomes a lot more motivating, so that you can get through some of those tough courses and those tough times um, and make it through. And so that's my biggest advice is to make sure you are passionate about it and that will help you. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, that pretty much finishes up my questions for you. Great. Well, Tori, thanks for agreeing to ask your questions on my show. I know that's a little bit unusual for a class project and not what you were thinking when you when you reached out to me. Um, but I appreciate you doing this because I feel like it, I, that's one of the reasons why I do the show is so that uh, other people can just hear what's going on in my head and listen in on the conversations I have with people. No, thank you again. I'm, so thank I'm you. glad I asked and they all got to listen in, so I think it can only be beneficial for everyone. Great. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. I appreciate it. And then if you want to give me feedback about the show or ask me questions about music therapy, um, you can contact me at heartbeatmusictherapy.net. Um, my next scheduled broadcast is at the end of February, and it will be a journal club for music therapy with uh, volume 52, number four of the Journal of Music Therapy with Dr. Megan Maskell. So have a lovely weekend, and uh, I'll talk to you again in about a month.